Hello. I'm Tom. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, and it always, is, it, always, it always is a privilege to be speaking to you here this morning. And it is again this morning. So uh, thank you for welcoming me up here. Like I said, this is the last in our series this morning of preparing the way. What was the subtitle? Building up the road, removing obstacles. That's what we've been looking at as a church <clears throat> for the past few months. And today's topic is working for man and working for God. So I want to spend a good amount of time looking at what work is. So I just said our job is to go and seek and save the lost. So we've even talked about work already this morning. But I want to talk about what work is according to the world around us, according to God and creation, and then see how we fit into that, and then what lessons we can learn. I think it's a really interesting subject. So for context, I've spent a good proportion of my life working in the private sector. I'm currently full-time in the private sector. I like to joke with Cy that I work in the real world, um, i.e. not for the church. And so most of my day, each day, is spent at work. So how do we define work? Well, the Bugolian definition of work is a mental or physical effort that's required to perform a task. Some cultures, they put tremendous emphasis on productivity. Some, not so much. Tibetan culture for government officials, it used to start at 10 a.m. and they'd call it a day by two. In Japan, working hours are very, very long. Communism has historically placed a huge emphasis on laborers and workers with very little in the way of reward or pay picture of communism. Next slide. Before the Second World War, so English culture would have been that the wives would have worked at home, caring for children and doing housework, whilst the men earned money with paid work. There was this huge shift during the Second World War, next slide, as women were required to provide manual labor whilst the men were at war. And since then, it's been much more common to find the roles of paid work and housework divided between husband and wife. I'm not preaching into this. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, make, I'm just making the observation. <laughs> but whoever you are here this morning, you will have to work every single day. It will take mostly in the best part of the day, and it will mean that you're unable to do things that you would rather be doing to more or less of an extent. For all time before the Industrial Revolution, spanning essentially from the 1800s right the way back to the dawn of civilization when Abraham was called out of Ur, mankind will have worked from sunrise to sunset every single day, raising livestock, sowing seeds, plowing the land and gathering food and hunting. Work was not nine till five, so there was no such thing as leisure time. There was no holidays. You'd perhaps get one or maybe two days a year where there'd be a festival and you could meet other tribes and you could trade. Then it would be back to the land to prepare for the next winter or the next drought or the next storm. Work was life inextricably linked Work was constant, and work was brutal. 
And it's important to know that ancient cultures didn't have a weekend. They didn't have a day off. There was no bank holiday. There was no paid leave. Each day was a day of work, seven days a week all through the year. Therefore, God's direction to his people to set aside one day to rest was so much more radical then than it appears to us now. This was in a time in history where every single hour of the sun was so important that in the northern hemisphere, the autumn full moon is named the harvest moon because it provided precious extra hours of light to get the crops in. And in this same time in history, God's people just take 24 hours to do absolutely nothing every week. So we lose the significance of this with today's culture because we have a universally accepted weekend where most people outside of certain industries, they take the time off for two days. And so we can look back at this and think, that's kind of stingy. But for the people of the time, this would have gone against all their impulses and all of the cultural pressure. So even moving from ancient culture to a relatively modern culture, the average working hours in the Industrial Revolution was between 12 and 16 hours a day. This means that men, and it was men, would have left home 5 a.m., and returned late evening, often performing hazardous or even life-threatening activity. I love this slide. That's the average working hours uh, in the West going down. The modern Western person enjoys five eight-hour days, totaling about 40 hours a week, with two weekends, eight bank holidays, and a minimum of 20 days paid holiday a year. We are the most comfortable, the most well-rested we have been in entirety of human history. Are we happier? No. Negative feeling has increased. Mental health has decreased. Anxiety has increased. Physical health has decreased. Human beings haven't been intrinsically unhappy for thousands of years, and then suddenly, with the, advert of the, the advent of the modern working week, everybody's now living their best life. It's demonstrably not the case. The fact is that as a human race, we have always worked, and work is part of what we are designed to do. Oh, I didn't start my clock. Oh, well, we'll start now. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles together and read about the creation of work. So turn with me to chapter 2 of Genesis and look at verse 15. The context is on the screen. God places man in the garden with all of the good things, right? Everything in the garden is good, and he places him there. And in verse 15, what do we see? The, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So before Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, which is known as the fall, we have God give Adam work. Work is from God, and work is designed to be good. Now, I want to look at the word used here, but there's a huge caveat. Like anything I say here, it's very much as a lay preacher. I've never studied Hebrew. I've never studied Greek. In fact, so much so, when Owen emailed the slides over and he said, please use Bible quotes uh, in the anglicized version of the text, I thought, why? We're not Anglican. I don't understand that. <laughs> but maybe that says a little bit too much about me. But the Hebrew word for work here is abad, right? Which primarily means to serve or to work. But it's also used of the Levitical priests 
for their work in the temple, and it's got connotations to worship. So God made Adam to work in the Garden of Eden, and the work would have been an act of worship. It would have been pleasant and enjoyable. It would have involved effort, because otherwise it wouldn't have been work, but it would have been good, just like the rest of creation was good. Adam was made to garden, to work, to minister, to worship. So work was made for worship, and it was made before the fall. But then after the fall, God curses the earth. And we have this, if you've still got your thumb in Genesis, flip over to chapter 3 and have a look from verse 17. Although if you haven't brought a Bible, it's on the screen. It says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God curses creation, and he also curses the work that Adam is designed to do. It becomes painful, which can either be physical or emotional pain. The sweat on Adam's face indicates there's now a physical toiling associated with work. And we know this well, don't we? Anyone who's ever done a day's work in their life will know that when we go to work, we expect to work hard to apply ourselves and to find emotional or mental or physical pain and for it to be a tiring experience. And so now we have this love-hate relationship with work. We love this gift from God because it's good for us to work, for us to keep our minds busy, keep our hands busy, achieving, building, growing, paying taxes. These are things that, as a Christian citizen of earth, they give me great satisfaction. But we also wrestle with this curse that work is arduous and tiring and exhausting. It was good. It is hard. What will it be? Will it even be? Yes. God's plan is for the whole of creation to be redeemed and for work to be redeemed also. Have a look at these beautiful verses in Isaiah 65. They are on the screen, uh, verses 21 to 22. It says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This beautiful glimpse of what is to come for all of us who follow Jesus shows us what work will be like in the new creation. We shall live with God. We shall work with God just as we were originally designed to do. Work will be without pain, without toil, without sweat, without the thorns and the thistles and it will be interwoven in the Sabbath rest of eternity. Work 
like the rest of creation and the universe, will be perfectly redeemed and mankind will have its relationship with work restored. And so here we are right in the middle, knowing the story that work is a gift that was good, has become corrupted and will become perfect. We live in this tension in the middle. And we find ourselves yearning for rest, yearning for pleasure, avoiding pain, avoiding toil, because deep down, we know that it isn't meant to be what we experience. Like Sai said last week, we find ourselves seeking out pleasure, seeking out comfort, cutting corners, shirking off responsibility. Pride begins to work its way in. I'm too important for this job. I should be doing something else. I shouldn't be doing this task. I should be doing that task. That's not my job. That's someone else's job to do. Part of the lie that I see a lot is that we deserve to have an abundance of leisure time, an abundance of spare cash. Um, we should be the boss, and we should be in control of everything. And anything less than this is essentially disgusting capitalism, and it's a broken system. That's a very Western viewpoint of work. Read these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I'm going to look at verses 10 to 12 and 18 onwards. They'll be on the screen. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he, loves, he who loves worth with his income. This is also vanity, so you can forget it. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner to see them but with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Sponsored by Gaviscon. <laughs> Behold, what I have seen to be a good and fitting thing is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Now, I find these words in Ecclesiastes such a salve to my disgruntled soul. I'd be lying if I said, I really like the idea of working my whole life. And I'd be lying if I said, I don't want to travel the world and take beautiful photos of things. But I come to Ecclesiastes, and we have the wealthiest person, at least in ancient history, right? We've got the wealthiest person on the planet. He received a modern-day equivalent of $1.6 billion in gold tributes per year, just for being the king. A king who had any possession any power, any privilege, any woman that he could possibly want without any political or social bad press. There's no newspaper, there's no panorama expose, because he's the king. He just cut your head off. He could live to the fullest extent into that desire just to be a slob, basically. And he reports back from that place that we will never see, he reports back to us and he says, the best thing we can do is enjoy our work and be content with what we have. 
And he was able to say this because he knew the greatest wealth he had was his relationship with God. Because he loved God and he knew God's love, he was satisfied with the simple pleasures. Not technology, not gold, not possessions, or a lavish lifestyle, but the noble task of work. And notice this mention of a meal enjoyed with friends. Because work is only meant to be part of what we live for. Though I may be slanting this preach slightly to emphasize a godly calling to working well with our lives, there's a number of you here too that need to know that God balances work at all times with rest. God himself even rested. And if we neglect to rest, our life will be out of balance. And part of living in this tension is that although work may be good for us, there will be hard times, there will be hard times which God often uses to shape us. I remember this one particular day when I was a teenager and the company I worked for, I agreed to do a Saturday, that was a mistake, and they had this contract to pollard a series of lime trees along an avenue. And I turned up on the Saturday morning and we went like the clappers down this lime tree avenue. And my job was basically at the back, feeding the chipper, raking up the mess, and sorting it out. And I remember that day as the day I didn't even get to eat my lunch. It just didn't stop, because the whole job had been underpriced. And it was a bit of a disaster. It kind of ended sort of in chaos, really. Anyway, Monday comes around, and I'm approached, and my performance was criticized. And I was told the reason the job didn't get finished properly was because I didn't work hard enough. And that was difficult to take, and I was rude. And his response was, well, you can quit, or you can take it on the chin like a man. And I was this seething ball of frustration. I still remember just standing there, felt glued to the spot, but I was not going to give this guy the satisfaction of quitting. So I got in the truck, and I actually ended up on another 12-hour day for the same manager who'd underpriced the next job. But during the day, I was raking up twigs and leaves, and I was raving to God. I was so furious. And I just felt this such a sense of peace come over me. And when the manager came back to check on the job, I ended up apologizing to him for speaking to him rudely. And it was just this, this grace of God that allowed me to humble myself in that moment. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So actually, submission to your manager at work is submission to God. Humility at work is humility before God. Working hard at work is working hard for God. And yeah, perhaps there's things you could have done better. But guess what? Every manager you will ever have will be a sinful human being with gaping character flaws. We also need to remember these verses in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. It's given in the context of family. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
That's really, really radical when you apply it to your working life. Whatever you do, being a spouse, being a parent, sweeping twigs, driving a van, cleaning a toilet, CEO, folding laundry, changing nappies, cooking dinner, whatever you do, work at it with your whole being, give it 100% and know that this isn't a platitude, this isn't anything other than the truth, that you are serving God. And then, we also have this absolute corker of a verse in the context of food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Again, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Not for man, for God. As Christians, we should be the most ruthlessly honest, the most humble, the most loving, the most hard-working people in whichever job we hold. And I love the way these verses aren't for, like, leaders or servants. They just, they just run as a cross-section through every single type of work you can possibly imagine. Christians should be the best workers, best before God, not necessarily best before man, because the character that God is looking for isn't necessarily what your employers are looking for. Humility, honesty, integrity, they're not really the herbs and spices that make cutthroat companies succeed. And there'll be times when what God says is a good worker is slightly out of alignment with what the world says is a good worker. And in these moments, if you've not settled in your heart that actually you're working for God and not for man, then you're going to find yourself slipping into actions that could be sinful or don't glorify God. But if you do settle in your heart that you're working for God, not man, then every single email, every folded sock, every emptied bin is done to the honour and to the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. Don't lose sight of the honour in doing humble tasks for God. The Bible says the church is like a body with each person playing their part and the church won't function without people faithfully playing the part, however humble. Let's just look at the last part of my preach today. And this is perhaps the slightly lesser loved parable of the dishonest manager. Should we read it together? Oh, I didn't say when it is. Luke. Luke chapter 16, I think. I haven't written it down. Turn to Luke chapter 16 and see what happens. Is it? Yeah, good, okay. I don't know what verse I'm starting from, sorry. Bit of a mistake there. But he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. That's bad. He called to him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. That's fair enough, right? That is fair enough. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Okay, so he's got a plan, right? So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Not him. How much do you owe my master? He said, 
100. Oh, I forgot to say, AI art, everybody, again. So enjoy that. Uh, so so uh, blah, 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 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down, and write 50. Scandalous. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And you, if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I asked the AI thing to give me a picture of a, a god of mammon. And I think it's the god of Costa, actually, by the look of those beans flying out of him. But anyway. Now, this parable, it doesn't get the playtime it deserves because actually it's, <laughs> it feels weird reading it. it just, it's like, no, this isn't making any sense. But when you just peel away and see what Jesus is saying... It still doesn't really make any sense. No, I'm joking. And there's, there's actually, there's a variety of opinions about what the essence of the parable is. But it's also quite easy to overstretch the meaning and start reading into too much detail. These are parables, yeah? They're not really there to kind of hang too much weight on things. But for me, it does, it sums up the whole preach. How are you applying yourself? That's the essence. Are you seeking comfort, or are you seeking the kingdom? This man, this manager, he is disturbed over the prospects of his future, right? His life was being held to account, and his time was up. Everything's been exposed. And like a sluggard in the book of Proverbs, poverty was going to come upon him all of a sudden due to years of feckless work ethic. Weak, irresponsible, spiritless, and worthless. That's what feckless means, just for clarity, because it sounds rude, but it isn't. The dishonest manager spends his time badly. And he spends his master's resources badly. He wastes away the talent that's been given to him. And now he realizes life as he know, knows it is coming to an end and he's terrified. So he sets out to radically transform his chances by ruthlessly cutting down the debts people owed his master which is the modern-day equivalent of around 20 months' wages. That's what was being shaved off the bill. He essentially uses everything at his disposal to ensure that he does not become destitute. And the manager sees his ruthlessness, even at his own expense, and he says, now this is the kind of manager I need. Now you get it. If you treat my estate the way you're treating yourself, we're going to go places. And Jesus says, look how this generation deals with its earthly finance. Look how calculated and careful the world is with earthly riches and money. 
good investments with their time and resources to build retirement nests, hedge end funds, stocks, shares, everything for that £2 million bonus, £30 million bonus, whatever it is in the city, doing all they can with all they have to be rewarded in the greatest way possible. Sorry, the greatest way they know. That was a Freudian slip. And folks, now is the time for us to be shrewdly investing our time and resources into the things of the kingdom, things that will bear fruit into eternity for you. Heavenly rewards. The manager, he got a wake-up call, right? He got an alarm call. He, was, he suddenly realised he was robbing his future to make his present more comfortable. And Jesus gives a wake-up call to his disciples. Use the money, the time, and the energy you have now, not for the kingdom of comfort that so easily entangles us, but for the eternal kingdom that is coming. Pour yourself into the kingdom now, which for most of you is the church here. The church is blessed with beautiful people who faithfully serve God with their time and their finances. And Jesus is saying through these verses that to those of you who are generous, to those of you who have dedicated your perishable wealth to God, he will delight in rewarding you with imperishable wealth in heaven. Every sacrifice in time, every pound will be accounted for in his kingdom. But he also says, if you cannot be trusted to use your earthly riches wisely, then how can you be trusted with eternal riches? They're really hard words, aren't they? I'll close now with this final thought. I needed a wake-up call. I realised that preparing this message. What I've always carried since I was a teenager is this unshakable feeling that we're all running out of time and urgency. If we, if we knew now what we will know then, we would live differently. And that's really challenging to me. If we, if we could go to heaven and we could see the wonder and the splendor and the richness and the majesty and the triumph and the victory and the peace and the perfection and the eternal Sabbath rest and the banquet meal that's been laid out for us, and then we could come back to this moment right now. I think we would change the world, actually, as a, as a church. We would just go out and transform the whole world. I find that really difficult. All about this poem. You lived next door to me for years. We shared our dreams, our joys, our tears. A friend to me you were indeed, a friend who helped me when in need. My faith in you was strong and sure. We had such trust as should endure. No spats between us ever rose. Our friends were like, and so our foes. What sadness then, my friend, to find that after all you weren't so kind. The day my life on earth did end, I found you weren't a faithful friend. For all those years we spent on earth, you never talked of second birth. You never spoke of my lost soul and of the Christ who'd make me hold. Whole. I plead today from hell's cruel fire and tell you now my least desire. You cannot do a thing for me, no words today my bonds will free. But do not err, my friend, again. Do all you can for souls of men. Plead with them now quite earnestly. 
lest they, can, lest they be cast in hell with me. Wouldn't that cause us to wake up to the situation we're in now? The situation where Jesus describes the harvest being plenty and the workers being few. We've heard it mentioned before that in the 1700s, the people of Hanhu, they prayed for 100 years and they sent missionaries out. Why? What made them turn to God every day for 100 years without stopping? Because they were filled with agony for the lost souls around them, right? They were so moved by the knowledge of the lost, it drove them to their knees to give up the comforts of this life, of an easy life, and to work hard for God and for man and to pursue his kingdom on this earth. Are you happy with where you are in your relationship with God, really? Are you happy? Are you content with your prayer life in that context? Are you happy with the amount of time you are spending on the internet or watching television? Because here's my confession to you. Actually, when I really look into it, my attitude and my time and my feelings, I don't see the zealous heart I know God is calling for me to have. That he's yearning for us to possess. I don't see the agony for the lost that continually drives me to my knees in prayer. I see apathy. I don't want the pain of laboring for God. I just want rest. I just want it easy, you know. I pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, but I'm awful comfortable, so let it come tomorrow. I have family members who are on the wide road to hell, and I'm comfortable eating a Chinese meal in front of the telly, and my Bible gathers dust on the bookshelf. <sighs> this whole series, everything that's been preached so far, is about radically removing things in your life that cause blockages for what God desires to do. And that is painful, and that's not easy. And everything in me and around me will make excuses for me just to have a nice, comfortable life, pursuing my own interests, and everyone else can go to hell. So that's enough of my excuses now. That's my confession. Bang, could you come up, please? So are you content? Are you content with where you are? Because I'm not. And if, like me, you've been challenged by what God is saying today, let's just take a moment to respond to him. So I'm going to pray, and then we can sing as a response. Okay? Let's stand. Put those tissues there. If you know this is for you, just hold your hands out to God and then pray with me. Lord, I confess I'm not where I want to be in you. Lord, I confess I'm wasting my time on things that don't matter. And Lord, I confess I just, I don't care enough about people's future. Lord, I confess I'm apathetic towards your kingdom coming on this earth. Lord, I confess there's more I could be doing with my life. And Lord, I just, I surrender to you this morning.
Lord, that song, take my life, let it be everything, all of me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Holy Spirit, would you just be poured out upon us now, Lord? Would you just be freely poured out on everybody here who is hungry for you? It says in James, turn close to me and draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. And I pray, Lord, for every heart that is drawing close to you this morning, would you just be so pleased to draw close to them and to pour your spirit out upon them, Lord? Father, I pray for a radical transformation of hearts. Me first. Lord, would you radically transform our hearts, Lord? And God, give us an urgency for the lost around us. Lord, I pray that we seek your kingdom more than the kingdom of comfort that we live in. Help us to be ruthless about the things that are not from you. In Jesus' name, amen.